Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. We're married. In fact, in my eyes, you are still wearing your bride's outfit. In my eyes. And you turn to me and say, being with you is like being a slave. You see how that would hurt the heart of God? What Israel had thought was freedom, an experience of making their own decisions, choosing their own path, was actually enslaving them. Sin and guilt, that was perhaps not obvious, but God knew. For a further look at Jeremiah, let's join Dr. Corbett now. Turn to the book of Jeremiah, please, in a moment. I just want to preamble this and then we're going to pray, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. But, but this is what I think we need to know by way of preamble. As I approach this text, I'm, I'm really very, very keen to try and draw out from this text what is in the text, what, what God actually put in the text. I don't want to draw out from this text what isn't there. And because I believe God's given me a bit of a gift in teaching, I tend to see the world and I tend to, I tend to hear preachers and hear teach, teaching and read books differently than many people. And I guess it's the same with others. If you've got a skill or an ability, like Tom could look at a paint job and go, Ugh. <laughs> and you probably do, I guess, and you, you can't help it. And I'm sure, you know, I've told you the time when Jeff came to my house and looked at my, what I call a pergola, and <laughs> which, you know, you're in trouble when he says, what do you call this? <laughs> so, <laughs> and so when I hear, when I hear teaching that, that is not, it's not well done, it sounds wonderful, it sounds inspirational and it sounds, but it's not well done, it, it frustrates me. And I could do that. We could really, I could, you know, I could have it as my goal each Sunday to rev you up and get you pumped and get you out there. Yeah. But there's something in my heart that says, what's the point of that? And, and so I, I want to give you just a little bit of a preamble here before we approach the text, because it, it really is my goal. I, I try and immerse myself in this text. And through the week, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining almost either I'm Jeremiah or I'm in the crowd that Jeremiah is speaking to and I'm asking questions. What does he mean? What did he mean? What am I hearing? What, what is actually going on here? Not, see, I think every preacher does, does three steps in their preaching. It's what does the text mean? Or sorry, what does the text say? What does the text mean? How does the text apply? And sometimes we just jump straight to this one and we're sloppy here. We're just really sloppy. I'll give you an example. I've never done this, but this was an example presented to me recently and I thought, that's very good. Jesus asleep in the boat, storms raging, disciples wake Jesus up, Jesus stands up, rebukes the winds and the waves. And how have you heard that sermon preached? It goes usually something like this. So what storms are in your life that Jesus can calm? Here's, here's the problem with that. And many people will leave hearing a message like that and go, wow, that was really good teaching. And I go, mm, 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 mm. Because here's the problem. Firstly, put yourself in the boat in the midst of the storms with Jesus. 
And, and there you are, you don't know if you are going to live or you are going to die. And drowning, I'm told, is not a good way to die. So here you are, and this thing's getting tossed, and it's getting water, and it's and the winds are coming in. Jesus, don't you care? Remember those words? And he, he wakes up, he stands up, he rebukes. I don't know what a rebuke sounds like to you, but it doesn't. Can you? I don't. Have you looked at it like that before? He rebukes the wind and the waves. Is that? Is that? Excuse me, wind. <laughs> who? Who? Wind. Excuse me. It's the Lord. It's not. You see what I'm saying? It's a. It's an angry Jesus. So I'm not trying to read anything more into the text than there. He stands up, he rebukes the wind and the waves. And then it says, the disciples, anyone remember the word? Marveled. Now, were they marveling because they thought, now that's a coincidence. I was thinking, I've got some personal issue storms in my own life. <laughs> Is that what they were thinking? Not a chance. Marveling that when Jesus stands up and says, Be still! Rebuke. I just wanted to do dramatic. <laughs> do you get the point? They are there in the boat going, Because he didn't just say it. When he said it, he rebuked the wind and the waves. Everything went. Winky Prattney puts it this way. It's as if the wind had a personality and the waves had a personality. And the moment they turned around and saw it was Jesus, they go, oh, it's you, sorry. They just went, Phew. And the disciples look at Jesus and they are marveling. And I can pretty much guarantee you at this point, they are not thinking, now that's a coincidence. I was thinking about the personal issue storms I've got going on in my life. Boy, I'd love Jesus to do that to those issues. They weren't thinking that. They were thinking, who is this? And I think it's at that point that Peter asked that question and the Holy Spirit answered him. And that's where I think Peter got it. Because we read of Peter in the boat... And, and there's a, a, another instance in, a, in the other Gospels where it says, and when, when Jesus did something in the boat, Peter looked at Jesus and Peter said, get away from me, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. No personal storm issues going on in his world right then. So here's the problem. Can Jesus calm the storms in your life? He absolutely can. But please don't. Don't make that the proof text for that. Don't, don't say that's in the Bible to show you that Jesus calms the storms in your life. Because <laughs> that's not why it's in the Bible. Do you see what I'm saying? Two people do. That's really good. That's... <laughs> you see, we want to ask the question, this is, this, this is what it's saying. What does it really mean? You see what I'm saying? What does it really mean? Because in a moment, as I was reading this, I thought, boy, we, there's a lot to draw out of this. But then I had to keep coming back. No, 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 don't rush to application. Don't rush ahead. Don't make the text say something 
It wasn't intended to say. We want to make sure that we're reading what the text actually says, drawing from the text what the text actually means, and then going, therefore, this is how I can know God better. Make sense? So let's go. Jeremiah, this is the prophet who wept. We've seen this. This is the prophet who, and with Jeremiah chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 14. We're going to go, you'll be pleased to know, all the way to the end of the chapter. So this is part 6 of Jeremiah. And I want, the reason we're going to the end of the chapter is because this is one monologue. This, this section is a section that Jeremiah probably would have delivered in one go. That's why you know, I took the first three verses or so, because that was a section. Then the next bit was a section from verses 4 to 13. And so now we're going from verses 14 to verses 32. And this is a section. So that's why I'm trying to treat this as, as if we can get into the, the crowd of the original audience. Now, chances are, when Jeremiah was delivering this, chances are this was being read by someone else. Um, um, and we're going to see that Jeremiah developed a, a friendship with, a, with what we would call, I guess, a secretary. And the secretary uh, took this down, and at one point he gets, I think it's in Jeremiah 45, it's really weird, Jeremiah's uh, dictating these prophecies to him, uh, to Baruch, and you'll see in chapter 45, as he's giving these words to Israel and to the nations and to Babylon and all this, he says, Baruch, God's got a word for you. And there it is, chapter 45, and Baruch would have written this down. And here it is in our Bible now. And it's an amazing word from God. Kind of, not one I'd want to hear, but hopefully it encouraged him. So here's Baruch delivering the words. And so this is what I thought when I, when I, when I realised Baruch wrote this down, took it into town, read it out. How, how easy is it to move people from somebody reciting the words that somebody else has written? Personally, gee, you'd have to be a good orator, I reckon. Or the content of what you're saying would have to be outstanding. So I want you to ponder that, that what we're about to read may not be immediately applicable to your situation. But here's where we can look at this whole section and let's put a big broad brushstroke to it. The people of Israel were desiring freedom. They were desiring freedom. And their current relationship with God was one that they viewed as one that bound them. They said, serving God does not make us free. I, we, the people of Israel, this is what they were saying, we want to be free and not have all these restrictions put on us from God. Now, if we had the time, I would really want to explore this whole idea of, I want to be free. I don't want people controlling me. Because if we had the time to look at this, I'd show you that there's an old saying that the old saints had, and it's something like this. You are, when you are a slave of Christ, you've never been so free. To be a slave of Christ is to be free indeed. 
and everybody who cries out to be free doesn't realise they are bound. And the question isn't, are you free or bound? The question is, who are you bound to? Or what are you bound to? So in a moment, what we're going to see here is the condition of Israel. We're then going to see the heart of God. And I really appreciated what Stephen had to share this morning. I thought it was spot on about the heart of God toward his people. And we're going to see that God uses, do we say embarrassing language? It's almost sexual. In fact, at times, it is blatantly sexual language that God uses in this passage. And it's a sexual language that God uses to describe the love that he and Israel had for each other and then the deep hurt that God felt when Israel gave that kind of devotion to other gods. And God calls that adultery. That's sexual language. So freedom is really the, the topic here. We're picking it up. Verse 14. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? Now, I guess you could miss this easily enough. Is Israel a slave? You see, the people were saying, this whole thing of following God, Jeremiah, we don't want to be bound to this. We're not slaves to God. Give us a break, Jeremiah. Cut us some slack. We're not slaves. And God asks the question, are you slaves? Because you're not my slaves. You feel like slaves. It's not to me. And then the, the, the next question is, is Israel a home-born servant? And, and it's the idea of you, you, you're a slave, you marry a slave, you have a child while in slavery. Guess who owns that child? Your master. And that child has never known anything else other than slavery. And God asks the question, is that what you feel like? You feel like you've never known anything other than slavery? What an insult to God. See, because what's going to happen here is we're going to read on that God is going to say, we're married. In fact, in my eyes, you are still wearing your bride's outfit. In my eyes. And you turn to me and say, being with you is like being a slave. You see, how that would hurt the heart of God? Can you see that? Are you a homeborn slave? Are you, you thinking you've never known anything other than slavery and oppression by being with me? Oh boy, church, can you get can you smell the tears stained into the pages of, of this text? We, we go into the next verse where what we're going to see is the prophet is going to say, so, okay, you don't want to serve God, so you want freedom by enslaving yourself. And this is how he's going to put it, because what Israel had thought of as freedom had actually enslaved them. And, and, I, and I'm tempted to hold back from the application here, because I think the application is so immediate that many people say, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. And they don't realise that that kind of attitude ends up 
enslaving people, binding, bounding, putting people into a, into a life that they would struggle to get out of. So we come, verse 15, the lions have roared against him. The lion was the symbol of Assyria. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruin without inhabitant. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about that the fact that Assyria had come some uh, 70, 80 or so years earlier and gone into the northern part of Israel and just devastated it. Taken people away back to Assyria, which is modern Iran, and had just destroyed the city. And the symbol of uh, Assyria was the lion. And so this was a, a word picture painting this description. We come into verse 16. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tarpanes have shaved the crown of your head. Now, the, the men of Memphis. Memphis is the old word. The new word for Memphis is Cairo. It's the capital of Egypt. So this is, you see what the prophet is saying here. He's using a word picture. You, you've gone to Egypt for freedom. Now, you, you think, just come with me and think Jewish for a minute. The ultimate expression of God's freedom toward Israel was when God delivered them from Egypt. And God makes a big deal about it over and over and over and over again in Scripture. And here the prophet says, so you're going back to Egypt in your hearts and this is what will happen they'll shave your head what a humiliation for women the word that's used when they, if they were to shave the top of a head some of us don't need any extra help but there are, <laughs> if you had hair and they shaved it and you had this great big whopping ball patch here, that's called tonsure, T-O-N-S-U-R-E, tonsure. And it means you're a slave. That's what it meant. You walk down the street, they go, oh, he belongs to, or she belongs to someone. He belongs, she belongs to someone. And at one point, people think that Paul the Apostle, when you read in, in Acts 20-something, that Paul actually shaved his head. And people say that was Paul doing an act of, of surrendering as a servant to Christ. So later on in the medieval period, the monks actually did that whole slavery haircut thing. You, you, you remember the picture, you see these guys and they got the whole thing there and it says, it says slave, I'm a slave, I'm, I'm a slave to Christ. And they actually wore it as a badge of honour. But back then, with this, was not a badge of honour. This was a humiliation. And Jeremiah is saying, you go back to Egypt for freedom and you will be enslaved. It's... Oh, gee, I'm tempted to jump straight to the application because it's so immediate. It's like the Christian who comes out of the world finds that being a Christian, another word for Christian is disciple. Disciple comes from the word discipline. And that's a word we all love, isn't it? And finds being under discipline, phew, this is hard. I'd rather go back to the world. And they go back to the world and they can't enjoy that. They don't enjoy being a Christian and they're doubly miserable. And if you can see what the prophet is saying, you treat God as if he's a slave master. And so you, you say, I don't want to be bound. So you run to a different slave master. Hello? How does that make you free? Verse 17, Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God? 
when he led you in the way. So Jeremiah is reminding them, this is what God did. God brought you out of Egypt. So, and now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Now, Jeremiah is going to make this point. You see, these people wanted to please the Assyrians. So what did they do? The Assyrians came in, conquered the northern part of Israel, and the Assyrians had a way of worshipping, and it was debauched. It involved what the prophets would later... Well, you'll read about in in Kings what was happening here at this time. It's called a religion of Baalism, B-A-A-L-ism, Baalism. And it carries with it all of this sexual immorality that is offered as an act of worship, if you can believe it. Now, I can believe it because I think the devil knows how to hurt the heart of God. And I think the devil knows that if you're sexually immoral, it breaks the heart of God. Because we're created in the image of God. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the, the eternal, co-equal, co-existent trinity, three dwelling in union in much the same way that when a husband and a wife come together and create a child, three at that moment of conception are dwelling in unity. Three different entities, one. There is something deeply spiritual about sex. And the prophet's going to make this point. But here's the immediate point he's making. The very people that you tried to please were the ones who are now abusing you. And church, again, I'm just going to jump to the application. If you're a people pleaser, be careful. If you're more interested in the opinions of others about you than what God says about you, you're in, you're in trouble. You're really in trouble. I love the story of the young boy who showed flair as a violinist. It's one of those stories that's burned into the etching of my mind where this young boy was presented to a retired orchestral conductor who, whose main instrument was violin and the parents gave everything they could to, tr- to have their young boy exploit his potential as a violinist and the, the, the retired master who'd moved to this small European village trained this boy, gave him everything and, and the boy grew and became a, a, a brilliant world-class violinist and, and was off travelling the world with symphony orchestras and then by himself was filling concert halls and, and then one day word got out that he was coming back to to his country and would be in a city nearby the village where he grew up and, and the village was a buzz that their own local town hero was coming near their village and, and they all got on a bus and went to the big city to be at the concert where he was to give his concert and, and the lights went out and the, the orchestra played and onto the stage, under the spotlight walked the now young man, put his violin into his chest and moved to his chin and moved everyone to tears with his playing. That resulted, after he'd finished bow by one side, violin by the other, a rapturous standing ovation, and and it went on and on and on, and it seemed to completely unimpress the young man as he scoured the thousands of people in the concert hall, and then eventually, way up in the balcony, was an old man sitting... And he saw the old man 
And the old man stood and clapped. And to that man, he bowed. Can we play our violin to God and not worry about the thousands? Jeremiah is saying, you are trying to please all of these people and they're only putting you in further bondage. Verse 19. Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy, another word for apostasy is given in perhaps the New King James and I believe the NIV is backsliding or backslidings. Your backsliding or your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. So here's what God is saying. When you fight against him, when you fight against him, he doesn't lose. You do. In fact, when I hear people taking on God, I just think, well, I'll just leave you two alone. Because I know who's going to win this one. The moment people become bitter toward God and take him on and shake the fist at God the moment you know God's doing something in their life and for the Christian who becomes bitter and angry I'm jumping to the application but forgive me to do this that when the Christian shakes their fist at God and say God you are unfair you don't answer my prayers you don't give me what you want what I want I've got I've got a suggested way out for you and I don't think you're going to like it but you may want to write it down so we'll come to that in a moment. But you, you, you're the one who suffers when you shake your fist at God. And that's what the prophet is saying here to Israel. Your own evil, your own fist shaking at God, that's going to hurt you, not God. And this is what God says, verse 20. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, On every high hill, under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. Now, what's he making reference to? Yes, this is sexual language. And what's he saying? Because in Baalism, you would take a temple prostitute, you would go up to the phallic symbol in the field, on on the hill, sorry, overlooking the field, you would commit sexual immorality with this temple prostitute, and that act of fertility was supposed to invoke the blessing of Baal, of fertility upon your crops. The pole was known as an Asherah pole and the God that you were trying to please was known as Baal, which ironically is uh, Hebrew for Lord. And it's an idol. And that's what, that's what the, he's referring to. On every high hill you acted like a whore. That's what he's saying literally, literally committing adultery, literally, and in the process committing spiritual adultery. Isn't it great that we can celebrate today 51 years of marriage? Isn't that great? The average marriage in Australia, and I know that there are people who have not enjoyed this, I know that, But the average marriage in Australia lasts 45 years. So I know when the media try to tell us marriage is old hat, marriage is for yesterday, marriage is such a Christian thing, and we're so past that now, it's just not the facts. 
the prophet is saying some pretty harsh things. Come down with me to verse 22. And here's the question. Because sin brings guilt. And guilt brings a stain. And sometimes God is the only one who can see it. And I'm told, and I've seen it in, in various ways, not directly, that when, when a woman is violated, sometimes she'll just go into a shower for hours and hours because there's something that she feels that's a stain on her and she's trying to wash it off. And the prophet says to Israel, your sense of bondage is because you are doing it to yourself. You are trying to get rid of this stain. This is how he puts it, verse 22. Though you wash yourself with lie and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, says the Lord. You cannot wash yourself clean. Let me jump ahead to the application. If you have made a mess of your life, so I guess I'm speaking to everyone. Thank God there is a saviour who shed his blood, whose blood washes where no soap can. You may have, you may have come out of a failed marriage. You may have come out of a checkered past. The prophet's got good news for Israel, and I've got good news for you today. God is a gracious, loving, forgiving God who can wash you clean better than any soap and scrubbing brush. The blood of Jesus Christ has been shed so that yours doesn't have to be, so that you can be made clean. So this is what the prophet is saying to Israel. How do you think they respond? If they... If they could hear what he was saying, he was really saying this. Thus says the Lord, you have broken my heart. You have broken the commitment of love that we had together. You've hurt me, Israel. You've violated this covenant that we had with each other. Yes, I'm ticked, but I welcome you back. Come back to me and I'll wash you clean. I'll give you a second chance. I will make everything right. And now... <laughs> I read this and I read to this point and I go, this could be a really short book. The whole book of Jeremiah could be, could be two chapters right here, if Israel responded appropriately. How did they respond? They responded with the deadliest spiritual response anyone on the planet can respond to God with. And I was thinking about this, I think, what is the most dangerous place on the planet Spiritually, the most dangerous place on the planet spiritually is to be immersed in an attitude that says this. I haven't sinned. What are you talking about? I don't need God's forgiveness. When I die and I stand before God, he'll be my mate. We'll be okay. He'll let me in. Cool. Oh, me and God, we're okay. Look, you, you Christians, you just, you just take a chill pill. You guys are fanatics. You think, you just, 
you guys just take this thing so literally. Gosh, get over it. Sin? No, I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't need a saviour like you. I don't need the crutch that you need. That's it right there. That's about the most dangerous place. Except I was thinking about it. I was thinking, no, I reckon there's an even more dangerous place to be. And it's in church on a Sunday, every Sunday, with a hard heart, where the Holy Spirit is wooing you, calling you. Come back. Come back. And you're saying, nothing wrong here. I'm okay. I reckon that's the most dangerous place to be because you've got just enough of Christianity, just enough to be inoculated from getting the real deal. That's the most dangerous place to be. That's why as a pastor of a church, I recognise having four children. My biggest job as an evangelist was to bring them to Christ. Thank God I I married an evangelist. And together, we we don't assume that our children, because they come to church all their life, are saved. What a dangerous place to be to assume you're right with God just because you, you know how this goes. You know the drill. You're flippant now with the things of God. After church, you go and do stuff that you know through the week, you, you, you know, thank God no one's watching. That's a dangerous place to be spiritually. And here's how the prophet reports Israel's response. And this is it, verse 23. How can you say, I am not unclean? I've not gone after the Baals. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. Verse 24, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Verse 25, keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it's hopeless, for I've loved foreigners and I'll go after them now. Oh boy. I told you this language was sexual language on the part of God. You see what God is saying? He, how does God feel? Can you imagine how God feels? He feels like a betrayed lover, a betrayed husband. He feels like somebody who's been deeply betrayed. And, and one of the biggest betrayals that God feels is that Israel has forgotten. They have forgotten. And he says it's a forgottenness that leads them to feel no shame. We go on, verse 26, as the thief is shamed when caught so the house of israel shall be shamed they their kings their officials their priests and their prophets who say to a tree you are my father and to a stone you gave me birth now it's objects of worship for they've turned their back to me and not their face oh boy church can we seek god's face I'm jumping to an application here, but when it comes to approaching God, don't show him your back. Show him your face. Show him your face. And then this is the audacity of Israel because it says in the last part of verse 27, but in time of their trouble, they say, Oh God, arise and save us. Oh yeah, they know who the true God is when the crunch comes. And God is frustrated with this. 
Treat me like a God in the box. Treat me like a genie in the bottle. You just rub when you've when you got a need. I'm sick of being treated this way, God says. Don't do this to me. And he says, where are your gods? We go down, verse 29. Why do you contend with me? Why are we having this fight? God says, you have transgressed. You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. Come down to verse 32. Oh, back the last part of verse 31, you can see the point of this whole section. This is what Jeremiah is saying. When the, why then do my people say, we're free? We'll come no more to you, God. We're free now. We've grown up. We don't need you anymore. We're free. So here's God's response, verse 32. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Remember um, David's two children. There was an incident there with Tamar. When she was raped by her half-brother, she took off her virgin ornaments. don't know what they would have been. But there was some way that fashion-wise, the, the women of that day wore a clothing with ornaments on it that showed that they were available for marriage. They were a virgin. And it sounds to me like if you're wearing that, it's hard to forget that you're wearing it, I guess. But, but the next one, if you, if you, maybe you forget that. The next picture that God gives is how could a bride forget her attire? Imagine being a bride on your wedding day. Oh, what's this? What's this white dress I'm wearing? As if. Can you see how ridiculous it is? And this is what God is saying. How could you forget that you're wearing a wedding dress? How could you forget me? It's as ridiculous as a bride forgetting her wedding dress. Well, we read on in this section where God is pouring out his heart. You see the heart of God? God feels like a betrayed husband. God feels really, really hurt. So we come down to the last part of the section where God says, you'll go after these gods but they won't prosper you. See the last verse. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust. You will not prosper by them. And we know that Jeremiah is not two chapters, it's some 50-something chapters, because Israel continued to be disobedient. But consider this, it's not two chapters, because at the end of this chapter, God could have said, that's it. That's it. That's it. I'm wiping you all out. But it's not. It's 50-something chapters. See what's happening? God, even with this response, is inviting Israel, come back to me. Come back to me. And they don't. I said to you, if you feel perhaps a little bit like Israel at this point, God's not answering your prayers, what's the point? I've got a prayer for you to pray. I don't think you'll like it. But you may want to write it down. It goes something like this. Because if you feel God doesn't answer prayer, try praying this. Oh God, have your way in my life. If there be anything in my life that displeases you, remove it, I pray. Amen. Try praying that. 
See if God answers that one. Not a lot of whole, not a whole lot of amens on that. Not a lot of <laughs> what a, can you see? People say, "Well, I, God doesn't answer my prayers." Yeah, well, how about praying a prayer like that and see what happens? You know, I I, I remember I was about it was just before I met Kim, which that could explain a lot. I was praying for God to break me and have His way <laughs> in my life. <laughs> and for God to not listen to my this may come as a shock to you but sometimes I whinge (laughs) and I was praying to God that he would have his way in my life so thoroughly that even when I do whinge about that even when it hurts and I remember I was out the back in the storeroom at Kmart at the time and I was putting some stock up into the loft where, and we had this conveyor belt thing. You just put the box on, it just sent the box up and I just put the box on and I thought, you know, this box hasn't got a say in this. <laughs> and I thought, God, I want to be like that box. I voluntarily want to be like that box. I want you to take me by the hand and let's go. I know it's going to hurt. I know there's going to be things that I'm not going to understand along the way, but I want to follow you and I want you to have your way in my life. Let's pray. Father, it's still my prayer and it still hurts to pray it. And it's still prayed with a a degree of hesitancy. But Lord, I've come to know you I've come to know you as a good, faithful God. I've come to know you, O God, as a God who's never, 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 never let me down. I've come to know you, Lord God, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and I've come to see that you are altogether good, altogether loving. You have a plan, and it is a good one. So, Father, I pray that you would have your way in my life. Help me not to be so arrogant, so self-reliant that I'm reluctant to be open to you and your spirit Father help me to pastor this church with the shepherd's heart that you want me to have help me to teach your word with the heart that you want your word taught help me to give counsel the way you want counsel given and I pray Father for us in this church that Lord God you would help us to have a heart after you, I pray. In Jesus' name. Sin and guilt that is perhaps not obvious, but God knows. And God can wash it away. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Session 6 in Jeremiah, are available from Lagana Media. You can contact us at P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277 or via the website findingtruthmatters.org. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly e-newsletter Perspectives, visit findingtruthmatters.org and click subscribe. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.